Father, we are so grateful how much you have loved us, that you have revealed yourself to us, and you have sent your Son to us, the eternal Word of God, the Word made flesh. And we pray that you would help us in these moments, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We are beginning a new series, at least I am, in uh, my preaching on the Gospel of John. And we are going to be starting right there in John 1, verse 1. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about... um, an ancient bishop of Constantinople named John Chrysostom. Some of you have heard of him. He, uh, his name means golden mouth, and he was called that because he was the greatest preacher of his day. And he did a series in the Gospel of John, preaching through John. And as I was preparing for this, I was looking through his first sermon, and I wanted to read you just a little bit of what he said. This is from an ancient elder of the church from about... Uh, 1700 years ago. He says this. He says, They that are spectators of the heathen games, when they have learned that a distinguished athlete and winner of crowns has come from any quarter, run altogether to view his wrestling and all his skill and strength. And you may see the whole theater of many ten thousands all there, straining their eyes, both body and mind, that nothing of what is done may escape them. So again, these same persons, if any admirable musician come amongst them, leave all that they had in hand, which is often necessary and pressing business, and mount the steps and sit listening very attentively to the words and the accompaniments. This is what many people do. Again, those who are skilled in rhetoric do just the same with respect to the sophists, for they too have their theaters and their audience and clappings of hands and noise and closest criticism of what is said. And if in the case of rhetoricians, musicians, and athletes, people sit in the one case to look on and in the other to see at once and to listen with such earnest attention, what zeal, what earnestness ought you in reason to display when it is no musician or debater who now comes forward to a trial of skill, but when a man is speaking from heaven, and utters a voice plainer than thunder. And he's talking about John. John writing the Gospel of John. And he says this, For he has pervaded the whole earth with the sound, and occupied and filled it, not by the loudness of the cry, but by moving his tongue with the grace of God. And what is wonderful, this sound, great as it is, is neither a harsh nor an unpleasant one, but sweeter and more delightful than all harmony of music and with more skill to soothe. And besides all this, most holy, most awful, and full of mystery, so great, and bringing with it goods so great that if men could no longer be mere men, nor remain upon the earth, but would take their stand above all things of this life, and having adapted themselves to the condition of angels, would dwell on earth just as if it were in heaven. And so he begins his series in John, with the exhortation, if men 
which strain their necks and give all their attention to worldly amusements. How much more should they give attention when the Holy Spirit speaks through an apostle about the Son of God? If we would give all our attention, as we do to those amusements, to this message, it would make this world a heaven on earth. And I think John Chrysostom's challenge to his congregation is an apt challenge for us as we begin to study the gospel of John. Now, as you look there at the beginning at chapter 1, most commentators recognize that the first 18 verses of John's gospel is a, a prologue, which is just an extended introduction to all the major themes of the gospel, and especially the central person of the book, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who loved us and who gave himself for us. Now, many commentators, including um, Pastor Jim, who's not here today, also recognize that this prologue, these first 18 verses, appear to be in the form of a chiasm, okay? Uh, and the central terms uh, appear in verses 11 through 12. And so if you look at verses 11 to 12, this would be the central terms there. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, notice here that the central issue is whether people will receive Christ, which John is defining as believing in his name. In chapter 20, John says that this is indeed the entire purpose for his writing this gospel. He says, John 20 in verses 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this gospel is all about getting people to believe in Christ so that they can have eternal life. That's the whole thing. That's the bottom line. That's the central aim of the gospel. There's a temptation to read what I just read from John 20, 30 to 31 and think that this is, the, this is only about getting people who don't believe the gospel to believe for the first time and that this really isn't uh, something for advanced believers. It's just the simple gospel stuff for unbelievers. Believers have to move on to bigger and better things. If you spent any time in the, the Gospel of John, you know that nothing could be further than the truth on that. John chapter 15 and verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. John chapter 8 verse 31 says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus teaches, and John bears witness, that it's not just believing in Jesus once that saves a person. It's perseverance in believing that leads to eternal life. So when we read John's purpose, that you be may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, we understand that purpose is both to give faith to unbelievers, and to sustain the faith of believers, which means all of us, all of us in this room need the message 
of John's gospel in order to persevere in treasuring Christ all the way to the end. Now, one of the distinct features of John's gospel is that the Greek is some of the simplest that you will find in the New Testament. When first-year students uh, study Greek, they'll learn the grammar, they'll learn vocabulary, and then the first thing usually that they'll turn to to begin learning how to translate in the Bible is something from John's writings, typically John's gospel. It's the Greek equivalent of sea spot run. I mean, that's how easy the language is in the gospel of John. And yet, and this is the thing that's so interesting about John's gospel, it, this, this simplest of Greek is arguably the deepest and most profound and most pregnant with meaning of any of the other writings of the Bible. It's, it's like an ocean. There are places in it in which the smallest child can run and scamper and splash around in the waves. And then there are places in it that are fathomless depths that you can't even imagine going to the bottom. And so as we begin our study in the Gospel of John, we're going to be doing a lot of splashing around in the shallows. But the Holy Spirit along the way is going to be taking us by the chin and forcing us to look at the depths as well. So one of the reasons I love this Gospel, and, and the reason that many people treasure it so much, is because it's unique when you compare it to all of the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin in time, either with the infancy narratives or with John the Baptist. John's gospel begins in eternity with the eternal word of God before all ages. Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. John's gospel mentions the kingdom of God like once or twice. Not there very much. It, there's a, instead, there's an emphasis on eternal life available now through the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on Jesus' teaching through parables. Guess how many parables John has? Zero. No parables in John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record one Passover dear, dear, during Jesus' ministry. And, and if that's all we knew was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would probably conclude that Jesus' ministry lasted one year. But it's not until you get to the Gospel of John, you see three Passovers and you realize, you know what? This ministry lasts three years. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record stories of Jesus' miracles. They're acts of power meant to demonstrate that Jesus is the powerful Son of God, the promised Messiah. John's Gospel focuses on signs. We'll come back to that word over and over again. Signs that Jesus performs, which are like symbolic miracles, little enacted parables, not just acts of power, but they're telling a little story within the story, pointing to who Jesus is. John's gospel is written also in a way that suggests that the author was really close to Jesus. This is not like Luke or Mark who didn't know Jesus face to face, but who you know, perhaps got their gospel from one of the other apostles, but who are basing it on eyewitness testimony. No, John is someone, is someone who knew Jesus, had seen him with his eyes. His hands held him. He touched him, he says in 1 John chapter 1. He was an eyewitness. And indeed, John never refers to himself by name in this gospel, but simply as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
it becomes clear that his whole identity was wrapped up in this one truth, that Jesus loves him. John chapter 21 verse 20 says that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And then four verses later, it says that this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. The person writing this is an eyewitness of everything that he's about to narrate. And he was a close confidant and beloved of Jesus. He's the one, it says, who leaned against Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. So he is very close. And not only that, he's a divinely inspired eyewitness. For Jesus says in John uh, 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he's speaking to the disciples, including John. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That right there is a promise of divine inspiration for John. And in John 16, 13, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You disciples, you John. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. John Piper, in his opening sermon on John, he says this, Jesus chose his apostles as his representatives, saved them, taught them, sent them, and then gave them through the Holy Spirit divine guidance in the writing of scripture for the foundation of the church. We believe that John's gospel is therefore the inspired word of God. End quote. And indeed we do believe that. Now in terms of the overall structure of the book, what I'm going to say is going to overlap with the recent messages that Jim gave on the structure of John. The main difference will be that whereas Jim was focusing on the kind of outside-in chiastic structure uh, in John, I'm going to be focusing on the left-to-right structure of John, taking the words and the phrases and the arguments as they come, reading from left to right. Where you're going to see the overlap is that we both see uh, the book kind of in two parts with the major pivot in the middle of the gospel at the resurrection of Lazarus. The resurrection of Lazarus is the last of seven signs that dominate the first half of the book. And that'd be chapters 1 through 12. And it's the sign that foreshadows the main sign in the book, which is the resurrection of Jesus, which becomes the focus of chapters 13 through 20. So as you're reading the book left to right, you can picture John's gospel as having two major sections with two short bookends on either side of the major sections. The first major section is what we can call, some commentators call the book of signs, it's written around, focusing on those seven key signs that Jesus performs, beginning with turning the water into wine, then ending with Lazarus's resurrection. And then the second major section of the book is the book of glory, focusing on the events surrounding the glorious death and resurrection of Christ. Book of signs, you're about three years time. Book of glory, second half of the book, it's focusing in on that last week of, of Jesus's life. The book of signs, right before the book of signs, there's a short prologue, first 18 verses. We'll start in that today. Right after the book of glory, there's this brief epilogue in chapter 21. So that, that's your overall view of, of John's gospel. But today we're going to begin with these first five verses of the prologue. What we find here is that John immediately throws us into the deep end and says, swim. 
And then he starts throwing stuff for us to carry while we're swimming. Okay, I mean, he, we are in the deep end, in the fathomless depths immediately. And so the three angles that we're going to look at in these first five verses are the eternal word in verses 1 through 2, the creator word in verse 3, and then the living word in verses 4 through 5. So the eternal word, verses 1 to 2, the creator word in verse 3, and then the living word in verses 4 through 5. So first of all, the eternal word. Everybody look at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The key theme of these first five verses is that term, word, which is the Greek term, logos. So accustom yourself to some Greek words in this study. One of them you need to know is logos, which is usually translated in our our renderings as word. Uh, But just like the term word in English is common in our language and culture, the same was true of the Greek term logos in John's day. In general, Lagos refers to inner thought, reason, or even science. That's why our word uh, logic, we use the word logic, it derives from the, the term Lagos right here in John 1. But Lagos can also refer to the outward expression of our thoughts and our reason. And so that's why it's commonly translated simply as word or speech or message. So Lagos is inner thoughts, reasoning, logic, or the expression of that in perhaps a a word, speech, or a message. But this word is not like any other word. It's not an impersonal word. Indeed, in verse 14, we find out it's a very personal word because John says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and lived a while among us. Indeed, the Lagos is the eternal son of God who would become incarnate as a man and share our human nature. John Piper asked this, he says, but still we should ask, why did he choose to call Jesus the word? Why do we have that right here at the beginning of the gospel? My answer to that question is this, John calls Jesus the word because he had come to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way that Jesus himself in his coming and working and teaching and dying and rising, was the final and decisive message of God. Or to put it more simply, what God had to say to us was not only or mainly what Jesus said, but who Jesus was and what he did. His words clarified himself and his work, but his self and his work were the main truth God was revealing. End quote. I agree with that. It's exactly why Jesus, in his person, is called the Lagos of God. Now, there are countless uses uses of the term Lagos that you can find in the religious and philosophical literature of John's day. But the primary background for our understanding of John's use of this term, Lagos, is the creation account in Genesis 1, which is why we had it read earlier in the service. Because in Genesis 1, that's where God creates through speaking what? Words. God creates through words, through lagos. We know that this is John's frame of reference because of the very first phrase in John's gospel. He says, 
in the beginning. Greek, two words, in arche. Same two words in the Old Testament. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now you've got John 1.1 calling back to Genesis, Genesis saying, in the beginning was the word. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Genesis, in John 1.1, in the beginning, word. This is John's way of putting the logos in the same place as God is in Genesis 1. Before God created anything, in the very, very beginning, there was the logos. Just like Genesis says that before creation, in the beginning, there was God. So also John is saying, before creation, in the beginning, there was the eternal logos. The one who had become flesh in time existed before all time in eternity. But not only was the logos in the beginning, it says that the logos was with God and the word was God. To say that the logos was with God suggests that he's distinct from God. But then to say that the Logos is God suggests that the Logos is indistinguishable from God. So which is it? Is the word with God or is the word God himself? Well, the answer is both. And here we are, one minute, splashing around in the shallows, of C-spot run, and now all of a sudden we're finding ourselves treading over the fathomless depths. That's where we are right now. John wants you to understand right up front what it took himself and the other disciples, probably all of Jesus' ministry, to understand. The fact that Jesus was himself God and was not something created. This realization... On the part of the disciples, you'll see this in Jesus' ministry. I mean, they, they were playing catch-up the whole time. And you don't get the sense that they under, kind of figured it all out until after the resurrection. In John 20, for example, after Jesus has been raised, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see him for myself and touch his nail-scarred hands and his spear-pierced side. You remember that part? I'm not going to believe until I see it all for myself. And touch him. Well, Jesus appears. And he says to Thomas, well, put your finger here. See my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then what does Thomas say? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. They figured it out, but they didn't figure it out up front. But John doesn't want you to have the emerging realization that he and the other disciples experienced about Jesus. He wants you to know in this gospel, right up front, who you're dealing with. You're not dealing with a mere man. You're not dealing with a mere prophet, priest, or a seer. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at God himself. Jesus tells Philip in chapter 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In chapter 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You recognize that phrase? I am. Get used to it. There's going to be a bunch of those in John's gospel. But you ought to recognize I am as a callback to the Old Testament, where Moses says, Whom shall I say sent me? And God says, 
I am. Tell them I am sent you. And Jesus is going to say over and over in this gospel, just like in John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus takes the divine name to himself. And he says, that's my name. So that before Abraham was before I am, that phrase is the same thing as saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. But how can he be God and be with God at the same time? Doesn't being with God suggest that he's distinct from God in some sense? Well, it, it, it does mean that. Right here in these phrases, we find the depths of Trinitarian theology. The eternal word is the eternal son of the father. Father, son, and Holy Spirit sharing the exact same divine identity and yet subsisting as three distinct persons. What makes them distinct as persons? They have three different minds, three different centers of consciousness. Do they have three different wills? No, they do not. They share the exact same divine will. What makes them different is their personal relations to one another. And this is why we confess every week in this church the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, especially the Athanasian Creed. You know why we're confessing those? Because we want you to understand what the Trinity is, and we want you to understand what the personal relations are between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father begets the Son. The Son is begotten from the Father. That's their relationship. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. As the begotten one, the one who the Father begets, the Son receives from his Father his divine essence. And yet that receiving from the Father has no beginning and no end. So his begottenness from the Father is not like our begottenness from our fathers. Our begottenness has a beginning. The Son of God's begottenness is eternal without beginning or end. It's an eternal generation, not a temporal generation. So the Son of God's, the eternal words, fromness, from the Father, is likely reflected in that term, logos. Just like the word or the logos comes from the mouth of God, as it were. So God doesn't have a mouth, okay? We're speaking metaphorically here. But it's the same way, so also the Son comes from the Father, draws his essence from the Father. Now, this is the point in the sermon when I would usually uh, have some kind of an illustration. Mm -hmm. Kyle is over here in the balcony somewhere, ready to start throwing things, because here's the deal. Anytime you try to illustrate the Trinity with something, the image breaks down into some sort of a heresy. <laughs> it just does. Um, it might do well in one aspect, but it's heretical in another aspect. But people still try it. I mean, how many of you tried to understand the Trinity at some point in your life by thinking of water? Right? The Trinity's like water, because water can be gas or ice or water, same substance, but three different forms. Well, it gets the substance right, H2O, but the three different forms is a heresy called modalism. 
any given molecule of H2O can't be water and ice at the same time. And so that will work. Others will say, well, the Trinity is like a man who is a, at once a father and a son and a brother all at the same time. Well, that de- denies the distinction in persons of the Godhead and is another form of modalism as well. Heresy. Can't do that one. What about the three-leaf clover? You ever heard that one? Can we compare the Trinity to a three-leaf clover, which has three different cloves that represent three persons of the Trinity? One clover, three leaves, right? Should work. No, it doesn't work. The analogy breaks down because the three leaves are too distinct and can lead to the heresy of tritheism. You've got three gods now. We don't confess three gods. We believe in one God, three persons. Three persons sharing the exact same divine essence because of their personal relations. The, the son receiving his essence from the father, the spirit proceeding from both the father and the son in this eternal relation of origin. So we can't really illustrate the Trinity and we, and we shouldn't even try, frankly. We should simply recognize that even after we've done all our theologizing, the Trinity is a fathomless mystery to us. It will take eternity to plumb the depths and we will never find anyone or anything that is a worthy or apt illustration of the Godhead. So rather than try to illustrate the Trinity, we should just stand with our mouths agape in utter awe and admiration of the triune God. That's about the best we can do. We set our minds to knowing everything that can be known. And then after we've known everything that can be known, and we've taken God's revelation and tried to account for everything that we can say and what we ought not to say, we know that we're... Our knowledge is still like a little molecule next to the fathomless depths of the triune God. We are children treading water over the deeps. And at the very foundation of our triune God is the idea that the word was with God and the word was God. So that when we read the Jews say in John chapter 10 and verse 33, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you for blasphemy, but because you being a man, make yourself God. They knew what he was doing. Our hearts cry out when we hear that. We say, no, it's not blasphemy. This is very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Our Savior and Lord. So do you see what this means for our sermons through the book of John? It means that as we get to know Jesus, we are getting to know God. Do you want your neighbors to know God? Invite them to taste and see from the gospel of John what Jesus looks like. If they can get to know him, they will get to know God. So verses 1 and 2, all about the eternal word. But then verse 3 is about the creator word. Everybody look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, there's one Greek verb that appears three times in this verse. It's the Greek, you don't have to write this down, but it's the Greek word genomai. And the ESV renders that word with the the term made. But genomai actually is a verb that means to be or to become. Its appearance here is significant because there was a different verb for being in verses 1 through 2. Amy. So the the verb in verses 1 through 2 signals existence, but this verb in verse 3 signals coming into existence. 
When you're talking about the eternal word, there is no coming into existence. It's just absolute eternal reality. But when you talk about what's going on in verse 3, creation, we have a coming into existence. This means that in the beginning, there was nothing there except God. There was not nothing there. There was only God there forever, eternally. There was only God. Then God made the heavens and the earth, and he said, let there be light. And there was light, Genesis 1.3. And Genesis 1 tells us that God created through his logos, through his word, let there be light. And that all things came into being through God's Word, it says in Genesis 1, God's logos. So the eternal word of God, the one who would subsequently become flesh, was there at the beginning as God's agent of creation. God creates through his word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And the word brought into being that which was not. All things were made through him, verse 3 says. All things. And so to put a fine point on it, John specifies that, he says in the second half, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or to put it more literally, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is how we know that the word himself, the logos, is not created or a lesser being than God. There is a decisive line between creator and creation, and this text puts the Logos, the eternal Son of God, decisively on the side of the Creator. The eternal Word is not created, but He's Creator. How many of you have ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness before? I have. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a heretical cult because they deny that God is a trinity. In particular, they deny that Jesus is the eternal son of God. They say he's an angel of some sort, which is a created being. And so Jesus does not share the same divine essence as his father. He's the singular creation of the father. The father creates the son, and then the son creates everything else through God's power. But make no mistake, they believe that Jesus is on the creation side of the creator-creation divide. And that means that he's not God. And if he's not God, he cannot be your substitute. And he cannot save you from your sins. There are many other errors in Jehovah's Witnesses' theology, but the fundamental one is their denial of the Trinity and of Christ's deity. Now, there really is nothing new under the sun. The Jehovah's Witnesses belong to an ancient class of heresy called Arianism. How many of you know that term? I'm asking a bunch of seminary students. You know, you've heard it before. Um, Arian, normal people don't usually talk about Arianism. Um, but Arianism is, is named after a third century Christian pastor named Arius, who taught that the Son of God was not eternal, but he was created before the ages by the Father from nothing as an instrument for the creation of the world. But he was a created being. He was susceptible to change. Even though different from all other creatures in being, he was still a creation of God. His dignity as the Son of God was bestowed on him by the Father on account of his foreseen and abiding righteousness. This teaching was spreading 
in the early church in the third and fourth centuries, leading Constantine, the emperor, the, the Roman emperor at the time, to convene a general council of bishops to come and to resolve the issue. And they met in 325 AD and then um, sometime later, 381 AD, and gave us what we now know as the Nicene Creed, which affirms one God in three persons with the Son of God's full deity and equality with God. So there's nothing new under the sun. You had this heresy back in the very earliest days of the church. You have that heresy persisting now. In every generation, there are people who either wittingly or unwittingly fall back into the same old errors that the church decisively rejected in its earliest days. Anyone who teaches you that the Son of God is less than God or that he is a created being or that his essence is somehow subordinate to his father's essence. That person is simply regurgitating Arianism. And we regard Arianism the same way that our fathers in the faith regarded it. We renounce it as a heresy that diminishes the glory of Christ who is God in the flesh. And we renounce it not ultimately because our fathers in the faith, faith renounced it, but because scripture compels us to renounce it. Especially these words in John's gospel, which say, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Which means the one who makes everything come into being can't have been created. So we see the eternal word in verses 1 through 2, the creator word in verse 3, and finally, the living word in verses 4 through 5. Everybody look at verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 4 introduces what will become another of the major themes in this gospel. Life. It's the Greek term zoe, where we get our word zoo from, right? This word life is going to appear 36 times in John's gospel, often appearing in the phrase eternal life. In fact, the most famous verse in the Bible, well... John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse. Maybe Matthew 7.1, don't judge lest you be judged. Everybody seems to know that one too. Um, but the other most famous verse is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And indeed, the theme verse of this gospel has it there. Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of many witnesses, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Twice Jesus is going to say that he is the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He'll even say in John 6, I'm the bread of life which means the bread that gives life. If you want to do something, as, as we're preparing to study through John, go read through the Gospel of John, underline, highlight, every time you see the word believe, and every time you see the word life, either life or eternal life, just, just underline them. Look at the connection in John between believe and life. His, one of the main messages of this book is that believing leads to eternal life. But maybe the most relevant to John 1, 4 is what Jesus says in John 5. 
In John 5 and verse 25 to 26, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Just as the Father is the maker and giver of life, so also the Son is the maker and giver of life because he shares the exact same essence with his Father. So when verse 4 says that in him was life, it means that Jesus has the power within himself to create and to give life. Both God and the Lagos, Father and Son, share in the self-existing life of God. John says in verse 4 that this life was the light of men, meaning that the life, the, the light somehow or, um, illuminates the human race. It's divine revelation to the human race. In what way is life divine revelation how is life light to the human race how does it function as divine revelation to people it could be that john means that when god creates human life he makes image bearers who reflect what god is like in their image bearing that could be the light that's coming into the world by the creation of life um, or it could be the reflection of himself that God puts in all of creation, just like Paul says in Romans 1. That which is known about God has been clearly seen through what has been made. It could be that that is how the light has come into the world. It could be Christ's own resurrection life that gleams so gloriously and is foreshadowed so clearly throughout the gospel. It could be all of the above. In any case, John is interested in readers knowing that the logos, the word, is the source of life and light in the world. And he says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, D.A. Carson says that verse 5 is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. That's a good way to put it. It's really just another way of saying that John often adds multiple layers of meaning to the words that he uses. And that term that's rendered as overcome likely is a double entendre. You remember that from English? A double entendre when the author has a, intends for a double meaning to a given term? I think that that's probably what's going on here. The word can sometimes denote overcome, but it can also mean comprehend. And the translations kind of go back and forth between overcome, comprehend. In this case, I think John is probably meaning both. So John is saying that the light shines in the darkness, meaning God's revelation shines in the sinful world, which is a spiritually dark place. And just like when God said in Genesis 1, let there be light and the darkness fled, so also when the light from the word shines, the darkness of this world cannot overcome it. I mean, how many times have you ever turned on a light in the dark and it, it, it didn't work? We know how light works. When the light's on, the darkness flees. It's impossible to light a match, turn on a flashlight in a dark place, and it not illuminate. Which means here, the darkness doesn't overcome it. It means that Jesus wins every time. 
God's revelation wins every time. But it also means that the light of God's revelation in Christ is resisted by the sinful world. The light shines, but the darkness does not comprehend it. People who love their sin and love their idols don't want to see the light. And because they don't want to see the light, they can't see the light. They can't comprehend the light when it's right there in their face. Think about Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus sitting right there with the Son of God, sitting there with the King of the Kingdom. And Jesus says to him, unless you're born again, you can't see the Kingdom of God. Blind. Light shining in the darkness, and yet the darkness is running away from it. This is essentially what Paul says when he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Or likewise, chapter 2, 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The darkness cannot comprehend the light revealed to them through creation. And through Christ, apart from grace, it, they just the darkness does not comprehend it. They run away from the light. John says in chapter 3 and verse 19, And this is the judgment, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practice the tr practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You see, the light of God's revelation brings truth and salvation to lost sinners, but it also brings conviction and exposure to lost sinners. And sometimes they fight against it, and, and with all their might, they fight against it. And they will deny that two plus two equals four before they acknowledge the light. So the biggest challenge before all of us as we gaze at the fathom, fathomless depths of God revealed in John's gospel, the biggest challenge is what we are going to do with this light. John has turned the light on with the dimmer switch all the way up, right at the beginning. He starts with the light blazing and declaring who this eternal word is, who will become incarnate to save us. He is God of very God, the one and only begotten Son of God who loves us and who gave himself for us. And what are we going to do with that light? Will we come to the light and let the light come to us? Or will we run like cockroaches away from the light and into the darkness? My prayer for you and for all of us as we begin this study is that we would come to the light that we wouldn't be scared away by the light, but that our eyes and our hearts would be open to a voice that's plainer than thunder coming forth to us from this gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would open up hearts and minds, eyes and ears, so that we could all feel and see and hear and taste and smell the truth of reality as you have made it. that you are the one and only maker of this world, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the exact same divine essence, are all on the creator side of the creator-creation divide. We are the creatures, and we desperately need to hear from you. 
Lord, open us up. Help us to see and to believe. And Lord, help us to have eternal life. Use this word to sustain us in the calling that you've put on our lives. And I pray that you would use this word to call out those among us who don't know you, who are in the darkness, who are fighting against the light. Lord, I pray that you would expose them and capture them by the light so that they would come to it and be saved. And we pray for you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.